Well, happy Father's Day. And it's good to be together, to worship God together, to open His Word and see what He might be speaking into our lives. So you are going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go on and open up to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. If you need a Bible, we have some people that walk around. Just slip up a hand and we'll get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along uh, with us. So we've been going through, or started last week, one of my best friends, John Stallsmith, who is the, uh, the lead pastor at Grace Snellville, was here and uh, began a new series that we're going to be going through over this summer, uh, going through the Minor Prophets. So if you've ever uh, been super curious about Obadiah and Haggai and Nahum, this summer is for you. But uh, and actually what we find is in this, it's called the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Prophets, and uh, that these words they spoke centuries ago still speak just as powerfully and relevantly into our world today. That these prophets were speaking at a time of incredible chaos and crisis. At a time of incredible political instability and personal insecurity. And God's consistent message was, return to me. Return to me. O oh, faithless Israel, O oh, my children that have wandered away, I have not given up on you. Turn to me. And what we find is that God's heart is for his people to dwell with him, to, to, to be faithful to, to be in relationship with the God who made them, knows them, and loves them. And yet the people have rebelled against God. They have abandoned him. They've clung to and gone after other gods, other places to find security or stability, safety, to be satisfied, to maximize pleasure, to minimize pain, to, to protect themselves, to make sure that they're taken care of, even at the cost of anyone and everyone around them. And in that rebellion, God lets them face the consequences of the choices that they make. God lets them face the outcomes of their decisions. And we know that. I mean, we see that obviously from a theological perspective in the Bible, but don't we know that from our own lives? That God lets us experience the consequences of our choices? Let's us discover the outcomes of our decisions? That God doesn't force himself on anyone. And yet his invitation, his message of love and reconciliation still echoes through to his people back then and to us today. Jesus was asked, what is the most important command? What is the most important thing to God? And Jesus' reply was, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. In other words, to love God with your whole being. But then he attaches a second command to it. To love your neighbor as yourself. That the way that we love God is intertwined with the way that we love people. And the way that we love people is a reflection of the way that we love God. And then he makes this amazing statement. He says that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so as we look back at these words of the prophets, what we find is that God is calling his people back to himself, but what God is calling his people back to is love. To love God and to love one another. And so let's begin here in Micah. 
I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson and then, uh, and so we can understand the context in which Micah was speaking, and I think that we'll see how it, uh, how it can echo or mirror so much of the world that we find ourselves in in 2022. But before that, the main verse that we're going to land on, what becomes is sort of the, uh, the climactic word from Micah to God's people. Probably a verse that you've heard. Micah 6, 8. Now, let me just read this for us. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah 1 begins, the word of the Lord, it's Father's Day, but ESPN we can watch later. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm sure it's a Bible app. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We'll pause right there. Micah doesn't give us a lot in his book about his life and, uh, and who he is or what he does. We know where he comes from, this little town, a little rural countryside village uh, named Moresheth. That was in the region of the Philistines, in the region of people that were sworn enemies to God's people, the Israelites. And that he was a messenger of God, he was a prophet, one who heard from God and spoke what God said, uh, during the reign of three kings, if you think about like the tenure of presidents, but it's not you know, a set period of time. Some of these kings reigned for uh, just a few years, some of them had a longer period of time, but he was a messenger of God during to these kings during three different kingships and over that period of time uh, Israel went through a huge um, climact I mean just a, a massive change of just a major uh, chaos and turmoil in in their world in their country now I remember last week those of you that were here when uh, when John was talking about the book of Joel and the, the prophet Joel Joel was very early historically in the prophet in fact, they think that he may have been one of the earliest prophets. And he was speaking in a time when the, when the, when the country was devastated by locusts. Right? Restored us the years the locusts have eaten, is that cry of Joel. And, uh, and yet, in the midst of this natural disaster, God's promise still rings forth. Uh, that one day, that his spirit will be poured out on all people. That the young men will see visions, the old men will dream dreams, that the Spirit will be poured out, men and women, young and old, that God would, re- would bring his presence and make himself available to all people everywhere. One day, despite the disaster that we face, God would come near. That was the cry of Joel. But the context of Joel is that they're living in this, the fear and the insecurity of this major natural disaster that the locusts have devastated their crops. And in that economic uncertainty, the opportunity is there for them to turn back to God, to trust Him, to listen to Him, to stay faithful to Him, 
to get their direction from him. But instead, what do they do? Well, like so many of us in times of insecurity and uncertainty, whether that be economic or relational, our marriage is struggling, our kids are rebelling, or our, uh, the, the stock market is plummeting, whatever it might be, we cling and run after all kinds of other things, don't we? And so they did that. And they began to go, at, go and ask for help from the other nations around them. And in turn for their help, they would pay tribute to and worship the gods of these other nations. And they began to, to go after and, and to be, build relationships with people that God said, they are not like you, they are not for you, and ultimately they will hurt you. But they were right there. And they felt safe, and they felt like they had some money, and they could help. They seemed pretty stable. I can't see God, but I can see them. And right now my world seems like it's falling apart, so I'm going to go with what I can see instead of trusting what I can't see. I don't know if that's an amen in anyone else's own personal story. And so they did. And that natural disaster ended up setting, or ended up setting them up for, uh, for what would become a political military conquest in that they lost the protection and the blessing of God. They went out from under his umbrella of protection, so they were left to fend for themselves in the world. And these people that felt like allies actually set them up to, be, um, to become enemies of other nations, and those nations came in, the Assyrians, and they took over and conquered most of the land. Kind of step that back a little bit. Uh, when, uh, when Micah says that he's speaking to both Judah and to Israel, that is two different things. Remember, Solomon, who was the son of David, led the kingdom of God uh, during its, its best time, the golden years. Huge, massive kingdom that Solomon's reign extended over. But then Solomon's sons rebelled against God and their father. There was a big civil war, and it split the country of Israel into two parts. The northern tribes, which was what was called Israel, its capital was a place called Samaria, and the southern tribe of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. And there was always ongoing fighting between the people of Israel and the people of Judah. So there's internal conflict, and in their nation, and there's external threats from the nations around them. Sound familiar at all? And so as they're facing these threats, both inside their own country and against one another and against the nations that have, uh, have rallied against them, Assyria comes in and it devastates Israel. It comes up right to the borders of Jerusalem and Judah. And at that time, a king rises up and, and calls the people back to God, a guy named Hezekiah. This is who Micah just mentioned, that he was a prophet during the time of Hezekiah. And, and Hezekiah calls the people to repent. He dusts off the Bible literally from the temple. He tears down the high places of worship to the false gods that they have turned to and calls the people back to be true to Yahweh, the true God, the creator God of the universe. And so during Micah's tenure, he sees the, the crisis that is surrounding his people. He sees the way that they're turning against one another and destroying themselves. But he also sees the hope of redemption that maybe they're turning back to God. Maybe there's revival happening. You remember 9-11, those of you that were around then, uh, that those, those months immediately after 9-11, we took some uh, college teams up to 
uh, Manhattan in the weeks immediately following, uh, following all of that. And New York was a different city. We uh, worked with an organization that basically set up just prayer corners on different streets and just sat and asked people, how can we pray for you? And everyone was hungry for prayer. I mean, because everyone had just experienced this massive trauma. This, I mean, they just experienced this thing that was just absolutely awful, and were, they didn't know what to do except to cry out to God. And this was happening with Micah you know, during the, uh, the reign of Hezekiah and, and during Micah's day. And, and so the people seem to be coming back to God, and everything is going great except when Hezekiah's reign ends, his son Manasseh shows up and totally undoes everything that his father had done. So you're watching this prophet, or you're hearing the lament of a prophet who is crying, speaking the word of God, calling the people back to himself, whose heart is breaking for the condition of his people, destroying themselves and destroying one another. And he begins to see this this glimpse that maybe they're turning only to run away again. And so as as you read through Micah, and we're just going to hit some of the highlights because we don't have time to get into the depth of that book. But my encouragement, as I say every week, is to dive into the Word for yourself. See what God might be speaking into your life through His Word. Way more important than anything that I have to say from up here is what God wants to speak to you out of here. So spend time in Micah. But what you'll see is, kind of like the, the cresting of a wave, is Micah's lament and sorrow. That there's this met, these promises of hope and redemption and this longing for God to reclaim His people. And then it will dip down and it will break Micah's heart and he'll cry out, Woe is me. My heart is empty. My heart is broken. God, where are your people? And then all of a sudden this this hint of hope. And then again the lament, but my heart cries out. Last night we were with some friends and just talking about some of the things that are our kids, and some of them are in their teen years, are facing just the culture that surrounds them and the messages they receive about who they are, who they're supposed to be, the, the world that they're growing up in about identity and, and what makes a good life and what they need to, what defines them and their body image and just all of the, the issues that they face. And as we talked, it was just heartbreaking as a dad Think about the environment that my kids, and specifically my teenage daughters right now, are growing up into. And thinking about this, uh, what we, as we read Micah, it's the, the cry of a father's heart for the pain and the struggle of his children. And watching what they're doing to themselves and almost a sense of helplessness that he can't save them from their own worst enemy which is themselves. That was the first verse. We have a a ways to go. (laughs) I'll read a little bit more out of here. Look, the Lord is, is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. In other words, God is the powerful one. There's going to be a lot of words that Micah speaks against the leaders of the land, both the political and the religious leaders of his day. But what he's beginning with is the one who's really in charge 
the one that all of creation bows to and melts before, is Yahweh, the one true God. And as, as overwhelming as the forces of darkness and the culture surrounding us, nothing is more powerful than God. And at the end of the day, His word is what will last. And His word is, what we, is the only thing that we can stand on. All this, all this that we're seeing, Micah says, is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. And what is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place, that place of worship? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. So she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. What, what is Micah or what is God saying through Micah? What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Samaria, like I said, it was the capital of Israel, the people of Jacob. Judah's capital was Jerusalem. What Micah is saying is that at the core of these people, at their places, their places of power are rotten to the core. That at the very center of their society, there's brokenness. And the instability that they've built their country on is about to get revealed. God isn't just speaking a punishment over his people. What he's doing is revealing a consequences of the direction that they've gone. It's sort of like telling them, you've built your treehouse in an oak that is rotten to the core, and the wind is coming, and this is all about to get turned over. Everything that you've built your life on that you feel like is bringing you security and stability, peace and provision, all of it's about to go away. Mike is just simply speaking what is. He's not speaking a word of what he's going to do. He's just saying, or what God's going to do. He's just saying, this is the reality. This is what's about to happen. Sort of like the doctor coming in and giving a cancer diagnosis. We don't want to hear it, but this thing is eating you, is, is killing you from the inside out, and it needs to be cut out. We have to deal with this. Because of this, and this is one of these first laments, I will weep and wail, I will go about barefoot and naked, I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah, it has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Micah sees what is happening, he sees the hearts of his people, and he gets a glimpse of what's about to, about to happen to them, and it breaks his heart. In chapter 2, he begins to reveal what is happening. Why is the leadership rotten to the core? Why, have, why are the people turned against and away from God? Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, it, they, at morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. 
And that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. That the lament or the sin of the people is that they've used their power, they've used their influence, that God has, has intended for them to be a people of blessing, that God would bless them to bless others. I will give to you so that you can be a rich resource to build up the people around you, to love with justice and mercy, and, and to be a, a light to the nations, to reveal to the world around you how good God is. That was Israel's call from the beginning. God's desire was to have a people, a family with whom he could dwell. That his glory and goodness would be, would be taken to the ends of the earth. But instead, Israel took the blessings of God. They took the riches of God's grace and mercy and provision and used it for their own. And began to exploit their neighbors and the people around them. Began to accumulate for themselves without any regard for those who don't have. Instead of being a voice for the vulnerable, began to take advantage of those who couldn't stand up for themselves. And God would have nothing to do with that. And these people that were supposed to reveal his goodness and his grace instead placed themselves as the kings of their own thr- on their own thrones and forgot about God. But even in this lament, even in this uh, conviction of their sin and their rebellion, at the end of chapter 2, verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pastures. The place will throng with people. And the one, will bre- one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. In other words, even when it feels like the world around them is collapsing, even when it feels that they are captive to their own sin and to their own circumstances, God will make a way. God has not given up on his people. And one day there would come a king who is like a shepherd, And that shepherd king would bring deliverance and breakthrough for the people of God. Chapter 3 is an indictment of the leaders of the people. The ones that were supposed to be pointing them to God. Supposed to be modeling for them what it was like to live under the grace and the goodness of God. But instead, verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, that place of worship, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem, the place of the presence of God, will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, the place they were to meet with God, would become a mound overgrown with thickets. And as I was reading this, I mean, just to be honest, as your pastor and as a spiritual leader in the community, I mean, I felt the weight of this message through Micah. And it feels like every week, and maybe I know about it more just because I'm in the church world, 
But even on news and headlines, it feels like there's some other moral failure of our church leaders. There's some other sexual scandal or indictment. Some other church that collapses because of toxic leadership and uh, abuses of power. And I think our world today is not that much different than their world then. I mean, he indicts the political leaders for living for themselves and accumulating for themselves as much power and, and, and stuff, material wealth as they could get. But then he immediately turns again to even the spiritual leaders, the ones who should know better. It says, you're living for yourself. You're taking advantage of your positions. You've forgotten God. You've turned worship of me into speaking the things that people want to hear and pretending everything is fine when the people are actually dying in a heap around you. You're exploiting people for the, your own good. And in my own like, personal conviction, the question became is, is that what are we, what are we doing? <laughs> are we creating a church that is to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and to get you know, encouraged on Sunday morning to go do whatever we want the rest of the week? Or are we becoming the kind of people that are working for justice and righteousness, mercy and grace, that Monroe is a better place because grace was here. That we're not living to be a, to, for the blessing of God in our lives, but to be a blessing of God in the lives of other people. And I think it's important we all take an honest look at our own lives and our own hearts, our focus and our priorities, what we spend our money and our time on, the way that we use the influence that we have, the way that we treat our employees or our staff or the children in our care, the environments that we're creating in our homes, and asking the question, are we living from a posture of receiving from God in order to be a blessing and to lift up the people around us, to reveal His grace and goodness, to be a servant, a shepherd, and, and a, a, a leader that lifts and builds or are we accumulating and acquiring and clinging to and manipulating and deceiving in order to create our own empires and to make sure that number one is taken care of first? And just pause and search our own hearts. Where am I, God? Where am I? What kingdom am I building? Brian's kingdom? Or your kingdom, God. Are we willing to speak the hard things? To have the honest conversations? To be honest with ourselves and to be honest with God and to be honest with the people around us? But even in this word, this painful word, God speaks a word of hope. Verse 4, I mean chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. In other words, even when it seems like the forces of darkness and the brokenness of this world and the hopelessness of 
of the culture that we live in, when the darkness seems so great, when the powers that, or the, those in power seem so formidable against us, God will rise up as the true king. He will, his mountain will reign over every other little hill of influence. That even those that seem like they have the greatest power right now, all the wealth, all the resources, the loudest voices in our media, in our culture, even though it seems so powerful and intimidating, the forces reigned against the people of God, that God, the true king, will rise above it all. And that God's heart is to restore relationship of his people to himself. That we will walk in, teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And this is one of my favorite images in all of the Old Testament. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. God himself will be the peacemaker. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. They will beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, the very thing that caused the most pain in their lives and in their hands, in the hands of God, will be turned into instruments of fruitfulness and hope. The very things that caused them the most wounds and that they used to wound others, that God would use to bring about his redemption and his restoration. In other words, the very things in your life that have caused you the most pain or that you have caused pain or wounding for other people, God can take and use for his glory, for your good, for fruitfulness and for restoration. Now that's an easier truth to understand when we see it from somebody else's perspective. It's the man that stands up and is honest about his addiction and says that I was in bondage to this thing and it was destroying my life, but by the grace of God, he delivered me and he has brought hope and healing and he's walking me towards wholeness and freedom. And we stand and we see that man and we say, praise the Lord, the sword in his hand that caused himself and the people around him the most pain. God is turning that, sto that story into a message of hope and deliverance. Or that couple and re-engage that stands up and says, we were about to give up. We were destroying each other. And we hated this marriage. And all I wanted was to get out. And we were covered in wounds. But by the grace of God, he brought healing and redemption. And we are struggling through to learn what it means to sacrificially love each other and to walk in forgiveness and grace. And we see those people and we go, amen, praise the Lord. God takes our swords and he beats them into plowshares. But some re for some reason, we look in the mirror and we look at our own dark closets that we don't want anyone to open the door of or the chapters of our past that we don't want anyone to read. And we say, yeah, but there's no way God could use that. But what if? Like, what if that God is actually that good? What if he's that powerful that our greatest moments of weakness or shame or darkness or trauma or abuse or pain 
are actually the very things that he can mold and shape become a place of hope and fruitfulness in our lives for the sake of the world around us. That's what God wants to do. You know, that's the point of that tree right there. That tree, those leaves, each one of them represent a different restoration story, a different place that God came in and took our brokenness and was turning it into something beautiful. That God took dead places in our life and brought them back to life. That God took old things and made them new. Places we lost hope. Places we'd given up dreams. Places that we were, our hearts were far from God, but by God's grace, Jesus saved us. Amen? That is the story we tell. And that is the message right in the middle of Micah. He will take these things that have caused so much pain and it's not to pretend that the pain isn't real. He's taken these things that have caused the greatest, the most devastating consequences and it's not to pretend that the consequences aren't real. But that God is good enough and powerful enough to take those things and mold them for his plan of redemption and restoration. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame and I will assemble the exiles, those who are lost and scattered, and those I've brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation, and the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day forever. As for you, a watchtower of the flock, a stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. You are meant to rule. You are meant to have dominion in this earth. You are meant to, to lead with, from the glory and the goodness of God. And God will restore that. He will redeem that. But how? Verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. And then chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem of Rathah, though you are still small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In other words, as Mike has already said, the hope in the midst of this darkness is that one day God would bring his king who would rule like a shepherd. And that shepherd king that would be freedom, bring freedom and deliverance for his people would come from this little no-name town called Bethlehem. So that centuries later, when another ruler and king that was oppressing the people and seemed to that there was no hope against, that God had forgotten them and abandoned them. A guy named Herod was met by some magi from the east that came saying, where is this king of Israel? We saw his star rise and we are here to worship him. And so all the, the wisest people of the land went back and they looked through the ancient scrolls. Where would this shepherd king come from? The one that would rule and redeem his people. And they would say, well, he's born in this little no-name town called Bethlehem. And those wise men would go and they would find a small stable and they would bow down at the feet of a baby 
named Jesus. And that shepherd king who would rule the people with the goodness and the grace, the justice and the mercy of God would grow and would end up on a cross. And that shepherd king wouldn't rule from a place of power and force, but from a place of sacrifice and love. And from that cross, the thing that most, the the biggest issue that most needed to be solved and fixed was not the nations gathered around them. It wasn't the economic uncertainty that surrounded them. It wasn't the issues in their own family and relationships. The biggest problem, the brokenness, the thing that kept them from God that was creating all of these issues in the first place, the cancer that needed to be cut out, the rotten core at the center of the tree, was our own sin. That we are our own biggest problem. And there's nothing we could do about it. Chapter 6 is written like an ancient court case. One that that mimics the, the lawsuit documents of the time. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Remember, mountains are places of power. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And as I was reading uh, or studying this book and thinking about how God's word is echoing into our world today, realizing that this same word still applies into our lives. We stand on the other side of the deliverance of God and the fulfillment of his promises in that shepherd king Jesus. We stand on this side of God being true to what he said he would do, that he would bring deliverance and redemption. But just as true in our lives as it was when Micah was speaking these words to the people of God is that when we stand before God, God legitimately has a charge against us. We stand guilty before God. When he looks at our lives, the ways that we have exploited others and taken advantage of, our pride and our greed, our lust and our envy, the way we tear people apart with our words, the ways that we deceive and lie, the ways that we build walls of animosity and hatred and division, the way we tear each other apart, that we cling to what is ours, the way we maximize pleasure and minimize pain, regardless of the cost of what it is to people around us, the ways we've wielded our swords that have wounded ourselves and wounded those nearest to us. We stand before God and He legitimately has a charge against us. On our own, We have nothing to justify us before God. Verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? God says, answer me. 
I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. That's from uh, the, the land of, uh, out of the wilderness into the, the land of promise. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember what I've done for you, God says. And this is to a people that their greatest picture of deliverance was out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, to freedom in the promised land. We, even more so, yes, God legitimately has a charge against us, but the call is still the same. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the way he has delivered you. Remember the way that he's brought freedom from slavery, salvation from bondage. We don't just have the story of Exodus. We now have the story of the Gospels. Remember what I've done, God says. How have I burdened you? God says to each one of us. What have I done to you? God legitimately says. But look at what I've done for you. And then the people's answer. The commentators say that this is uh, best understood as the response of the people to God's charge. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, God, what's good enough for you? Sure, you have a charge against us. Sure, you've done great things for us in the past, but what are we supposed to do? It's sort of the attitude of an arrogant teenager that's getting in trouble with his parents. What am I supposed to do? Clean my room every day for a million years? Will you be happy then? And the response of the people to the charge before them, the legitimate charge of God, side by side with the legitimate grace of God is to go, what am I supposed to do, God? Anything going to make you happy? If I had thousands of rams, would you be pleased then? But God's concern isn't the amount of their gift. God's concern is the condition of their soul. And then comes that verse that we started with. In the context of this defensive posture of the people before the legitimate charge of God, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God want? He wants your heart. He wants you to walk with him. From the first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve hiding in a bush because of their shame. And what do we see? We see God come walking in the garden. Adam, where are you? God's desire for his people was to walk with him, to listen to his voice, to lean into him, to follow him along the way. And God's invitation and his cry, come back to me, I want your hearts. And when I have your hearts, when you're walking with me, that idea of walking humbly with God, to lean into, to watch, to listen, to learn from. 
this past week, we had the opportunity for our summer vacation. Sadie's dad uh, uh, took us up to our family up to Maine for the week, and we stayed in this little house outside of Acadia National Park. And every day, we went on different hikes, and it was just incredible. It was just a great time as a family. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And one of my favorite things, and think about Father's Day, and as I'm go, going on these hikes with the words of Micah in my head, what does it mean to walk with God, to keep company with God? That the God of this universe isn't standing off from a distance yelling commands at me that I can never measure up to, but it's just saying, hey, come with me. Let's go for a walk together. But to walk humbly, that we're not the one that leads the way. We don't tell God where to go. To walk humbly is to take our rightful place with a good Father who wants to lead us into good places. There's one hike that we did on our last day. It's called Beehive. And, and Beehive is uh, it's basically a hike up like a straight cliff face uh, to go stand on top of this mountain. There's like metal ladders and rungs that you have to climb. And if you slip, it's hundreds of feet down to your imminent death. And so, super exciting. And uh, there's actually a sign as you pass on the way that's like, you could die. If you're afraid of heights, don't go. I mean, it's literally what the sign says. Don't bring small children. And here I have my two little boys that are all fired up and ready to go. And so we would go on this hike, and I'm like trying to put the fear of God into my sons that want to go like climb like a jungle gym on the cliff face. And, uh, and so we're like, no, you have to stay with me. Stay close. If I tell you to stop, that means stop. That doesn't mean walk ten more steps and then stop. Stay close. Why? Because I want you to live. I want what's best for you. I know what's best for you. I see a little bit farther than you do. Stay close to me. And we'll go on some incredible adventures, but lean into me. Because I want your good. And the invitation of God stays the same. It's our rebellion, it's our sin, it's the charges against him that are right and just, but the amazing thing about God is that in Jesus, the shepherd king, he didn't lay the charges at our feet, he laid them at his feet. And the things that separated us from him, he didn't use to keep us away from him, but he took on himself so that we could be reunited back to him. And we stand on this side of Jesus, and the invitation remains the same. Walk with me. And as we walk with God, our hearts are turned by God, and we become people that do justice and love mercy. That's a great phrase, to love mercy, by the way, because what it means in the Hebrew is literally love, love. Love, love. The first word love in the Hebrew is, is uh, human love. And we use the word of desire or affection. The second word love is said is God's covenant, sacrificial, steadfast, faithful love. Love, love. Sacrificial, may sacrificial, steadfast love define your life. May you walk with me and be people of justice. That you are a blessing to the world, that you're a voice for the voiceless, that you stand with the vulnerable, that you go into the places of brokenness to bring forth beauty that you're a message of hope for those that are walking in darkness, that we fight for those who can't stand up for themselves, 
that we work in a broken and exploitive world to say, how can we be people of service and blessing? How is this world better because we were here, people of Jesus? And Micah ends. Who is, end of chapter 7, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledge on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Your heavenly Father is calling you back to himself. And he took an honest, hard look at your sin, at my sin, at our brokenness. And he was willing to step into the mess of our lives and the mess of our world. And he took that brokenness and he went to the cross. And on the cross, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin, that nothing could separate us from the love of God. And three days later, that shepherd king born in that no-name town, Bethlehem, that would be hung on a cross, would rise again from the dead, proving that he was, in fact, the true king of the universe, that mountain of Zion that would reign over every other mountain, that one who would be the breakthrough and the redemption, that would fulfill all of the cries of the prophets, and that would extend the same invitation follow me, walk with me, follow me. If I don't know where you are this morning, I don't know what baggage or guilt or hurt that you walked in here with, what I do know is that the God of this universe sees it all and that he opened his arms wide that you could be set free. Have you laid your life at the foot of the cross? Have you given up yet trying to make it work for yourself? When we pray, the Bible uses this word confession, and confession simply means just being honest with God. That's what the prophets did, they were just honest. This is where we are, this is where we're headed. This is what we need. In confession, we're honest with God. God, I'm broken. I'm a mess. My sin has separated me from you and hurt the people around me. I need you. Will you forgive me? And the answer is yes. 2,000 years ago, he did. He was just waiting for you to receive it like a free gift. And we receive that forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we receive him as our Lord, as our Savior, he says he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwelling in us. The one like a good father that would guide us and lead us along the way. That's what we need to navigate this world.
Will you receive the free gift of God's grace by the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ? Will you surrender to Him? I'm going to pray for us and give us an opportunity to respond and worship. I invite you to just come and kneel. We love that our architecture is just a reminder of the cross in front of us. We come just lay ourselves at His feet. Maybe for the first time, maybe again, we need to bring ourselves back to that place of surrender to Jesus to receive His salvation and His mercy. And then I invite you to take communion. And when we take communion, communion is an act of faith. It's a sacrament. It's a spiritual act. It isn't what saves us, it's what displays our salvation. And as we take that bread that Jesus broke and said, this is my body given for you, and we dip it in that cup that Jesus says, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of a new covenant, as we take that into ourselves, it is an act of faith. It's a display that we are receiving the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are receiving the presence of God as real as that bread on our tongue. The, thing, the only thing that truly sustains us. And so when I invite you to communion, I'm not inviting you to a religious traditional act. I'm inviting you to display by that act your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the forgiveness of sins by his death 2,000 years ago and the invitation into new life by his resurrection. That's what communion is. Becoming one with God our Father. That was the cry of the hope of Micah and the pain of this world. Will you receive Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that these ancient words are still just as alive and powerful today. And Lord, we find ourselves in that same place with so much uncertainty and brokenness where it feels like so much darkness that is winning it feels like at times god but our faith our hope is that that's not the end of the story that god you did not give up on your people Lord, we thank you that you yourself came to be our shepherd king and we need your breakthrough in our lives in our families in this city Will you teach us to walk humbly with you? Will you show us what it means to do justice, to love mercy, to be a blessing in this world? May we be a people of redemption and reconciliation. Beat our swords into plowshares, Lord. That the weapons against us become instruments of fruitfulness, Lord. And so invite whoever is led to come to the feet of Jesus to come. And if you choose to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, to open your heart to Him, to receive His Spirit and the gift of forgiveness, I encourage you, come find me. Come find one of our elders. Let us walk with you into the newness of life in Christ.
He's good, and he loves you. Let's worship.